It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Sometimes people ask, why does God allow war? I don't know the answer to this, but war is a terrible thing, sometimes a necessary thing, that dramatically affects everybody involved. Sometimes war has meaning, and sometimes it has none. However, there is one constant. Those who suffer the most have nothing to gain from its outcome and had nothing to do with starting it. Charles E. Summers, photographer of the U.S. Army's 166th Signal Photographic Company in World War II. Scholar Warrior CJ here. Welcome to episode 191 of the Dangerous History Podcast. And for this episode, I'm going to present to you a conversation with one of the three co-authors of a fascinating new book entitled Aftershock, The Human Toll of War, Haunting World War II Images by America's Soldier Photographers, published by City Files Press. But real quick, just a few things before I get into that. I know you've not heard from me in a while, nearly a month, and I've been working behind the scenes but haven't been able to finalize an episode since the end of my Halloween specials. Partly this is because I've been dealing with more uh, health sort of issues. I was struggling still for a little bit of November with getting my chronic pain situation under control. Finally got it dialed in, and then within just a matter of days of really getting that squared away, then I injured my back badly and spent two weeks suffering pretty badly with that. At its worst, I could hardly hobble around any any great distance. So while that doesn't stop me from doing things like researching and reading up and, you know, working on research for things like the next DHL lecture and things like upcoming Woodrow Wilson material... That sort of stuff does take the wind out of your sails and drop your energy levels down. And the other thing it does is it prevents you from sitting in certain positions for extended periods of time, like, you know, sitting in my swivel chair at my desk working on note composition for upcoming DHP episodes. So anyway, it's been rough, but finally, finally, I think it's all over after dealing with basically six weeks of abdominal pain and then two weeks of severe back pain. Fingers crossed, knock on wood, I think it's finally over. And I've been able to, in addition to getting back full bore on the DHP over the last week or so, 
I've been able to get back more to the exercise routine I'd been doing up until all this stuff started to happen. And so that also has been helping me to feel better and get my energy level back up to be able to run and do all the other things I want to do. You know, I'm going back to martial arts this week after being away from it for a while. So I'm very happy about that. And hopefully this will enable me to kick back up the production of DHP episodes to what it had been before, say, mid-September. Also, I just briefly want to mention that it's, as I record this, the beginning of Thanksgiving week, which means Black Friday and Cyber Monday are coming up. And so I just want to remind you, if you're doing any of that sort of shopping through Amazon.com, please, if you want to help me out a little bit, go through any of my Amazon affiliate links on the website. And even if you buy things other than, you know, what I have links to, I'll get a little kickback from Amazon for whatever you buy at no additional cost to you. And that is one of the many great ways that you can help keep the DHP chugging along and help support my work. All right, so I was turned on to this book, which was published pretty recently by a longtime listener, friend of the show, someone whom I've had the pleasure to meet personally at one of the times I was in New Hampshire about a year ago, and that is Kathleen. So shout out to Kathleen. Thanks for sparking this episode. Kathleen let me know that her brother is actually one of the three co-authors of this book that we're talking about today. That is Mark Jacob, who I'm going to be speaking with in a moment. I'm going to share with you my conversation with him. But real quick, before I launch into that, I just want to share with you super brief bios of the three co-authors, who are Richard Cahan, Michael Williams, and Mark Jacob. So Richard Cahan is former picture editor of the Chicago Sun-Times and is the author or co-author of around 20 books. Michael Williams, a well-known Chicago photo historian, is the co-author of more than a dozen books. And Mark Jacob, to whom I'll be speaking, is former Metro editor at the Chicago Tribune and former Sunday editor at the Chicago Sun-Times, and he is the co-author of eight books. So all three of these gentlemen who cooperated on this book, Aftershock, have extensive experience in these sorts of matters. And they went through some significant archives of World War II military photographs many of which are being seen by the public for the first time. And Mark was kind enough to send me an electronic copy of the book before our interview. And so I had a good number of days to look at it, and it is just an excellent piece of work and uh, lots of different emotions looking through all these pictures. really gives you a window into the human tragedy side of World War II that you often don't get in the sanitized, kind of Disney-fied version in mainstream American discourse. So anyway, it was a great conversation that I had with Mark Jacob, and I highly recommend this book if you're at all interested in a view, a window into the reality of World War II that you just won't find anywhere else. So here we go. Here is my conversation with Mark Jacob, one of the three co-authors of the recent book, Aftershock. Okay, Mark, thank you for taking the time and joining me on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. So you are one of the three authors of the the recently published book, Aftershock, The Human Toll of War, 
haunting World War II images by America's soldier photographers. And if you go to the history section of any brick-and-mortar bookstore, if you find one of those, or any library in America, and go to the history section there, you'll usually find that there are way more books on World War II than probably on any other historical topic. And yet, you and your co-authors decided you still wanted to add another brick to that gigantic pile. So, <laughs> I, I have to start off with, how did you all get started on this project, and what made you decide that despite all that, still, there needed to be at least one, World War, one more World War II book thrown into the heap? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, because if it was just another World War II book, you know, what's the point? Uh, people could just show up at the library. But uh, we decided to do it a little bit differently. Just a, little, a quick thing. The, so the, uh, I'm working with, the three of us are, work with uh, City Files Press, which is you know, based in Chicago. And the basic mission of that publishing company is that it, uh, they look at old archives of photos and try to find make new statements with them. You know, they, for example... A recent book that I was not involved with, but my two co-authors, Richard Cahan and uh, Michael Williams, were, was uh, a book called Un-American, which was about uh, the Japanese uh, incarceration during World War II. And they got old photographs from uh, from the camps, etc. And so, uh, and, you know, they've done... They've done tons of books. I've done a few books as well, you know, on old photos. I did uh, Richard Cahan and I did a photo, uh, did a book on old baseball photos, uh, etc. So it's not just war related, but looking at old archives that maybe um, at the time were not fully, uh, you know, exploited by historians, and that there may be some kind of hidden treasures in there. And uh, the World War II photos that we looked at were photos from the U.S. Army Signal Corps from the last year of World War II, from 1945. And there's more than 100,000 of those in the National Archives at uh, College Park, Maryland. And uh, so what we did is, uh, you know, went through and looked at them. And we're just kind of looked to try to make new statements and also trying to find photos that just had not been fully kind of exposed and were not showing up in, you know, the old books. So, uh, we tried to tell a new story. You know, the thing about the, this collection, it was uh, the U.S. Army soldier photographers went out and took a bunch of pictures, and uh, they were wanting to document the war and documenting what the Army had done and document the, you know, the whole the damage of the war and, you know, the accomplishments of the, of the soldiers. But it was also used for propaganda. And uh, to some extent, to looking at it 75 years later, you just look at it in a new light and you think of, you want to make new statements. There are some pictures in the book that certainly would not have been published 75 years ago. Yeah, you, you've already pointed at this a little bit, but I'm interested in hearing more of what you think. Why do you think that the U.S. military and the U.S. government were so interested in trying to document this war photographically as extensively as they seem to have wanted to. I mean, I could be wrong, and, and you could correct me if you know otherwise, but I'm assuming that no other major combatant government in World War II devoted as much resources and manpower to photography of this sort as did the U.S. military. Well that's a good question, and I don't have a complete answer on that. 
I suspect that the other countries did, but maybe not to that extent. You know, frankly, the Soviet Union was trying to survive and uh, et cetera. So there are photo archives like that, but not not like the U.S. The, the U.S. was in a kind of a unique position in World War II, which is why it came out of World War II as the world's you know main superpower. Is um, is it? It, you know, the war, war wasn't fought on its ground. Uh, you know, it, it it had a lot of casualties, but compared to other countries, not relatively as many casualties. And the U.S. had so many resources, and uh, I think that's why you have this kind of kind of amazing collection. There are even separate, uh, you know, uh, Navy and Marines uh, photo groups too. So th- th- there's an amazing number of photographs taken of this war. Hmm. So. Can you tell us a bit about kind of the nuts and bolts process of how you went about working on this in terms of like the the research and the curation and all that for putting together this book? Sure, sure. And and, and that may help explain, you know, your other question, uh, answer your other question about why it's different because uh we went to the uh to the National Archives and uh looked at the photos and they have the photos kind of in you know folders they have them out there where you can look at the prints of the pictures and you know went through them and decided what we wanted to uh to scan and we had um we, we had access to be able to scan the negatives which is one big difference these were mostly uh four by five inch negatives uh taken with speed graphic cameras you, you know if you've ever seen those old movies that show press photographers and they're holding these big cameras. Those are they're the speed graphic cameras, most likely. And um, they're a little difficult to operate, but they take, uh, you know, they take beautiful four by five inch negatives and with a lot of information on them. And so scanning those negatives with modern, uh, you know, modern equipment means that these photographs look way better than they've ever looked before. They just jump off the page in the book. And uh, they're just, you know, all the, the hues and the and the all the tones of them really come out and so so one of the things we wanted to do is make these really fascinating and stark pictures look better than ever before so we you know scanned them all in and um and just went through the editing process um i'm a former editor at the chicago tribune i was a metro editor and richard cahan uh one of my co-authors was picture editor at the Chicago Sun Times, and Michael Williams is a longtime photo historian as well. So uh, we really know how to handle these kind of collections and how to look for kind of the hidden treasures. And uh, you know, I feel like we found them. And when we uh, would find pictures that we didn't know much about, we'd go through this kind of journalistic process of investigating and trying to figure them out. Here's just one example: is um, that we uh, saw this picture. It was a beautiful picture. It's in the book of a Chinese a group of Chinese relatives who were in mourning. They're dressed in for mourning, and they're at the their feet are boxes of skulls and bones of their loved ones. And this is, was taken in the Philippines in 1945. And we didn't know a ton more than that. Um, and so, but we started kind of looking around. The internet's a wonderful thing, and we figured out that. Uh, that this was the, you know, we knew these were Chinese diplomats. That's about all we knew. And we uh, found out that the daughter of the, we tracked down the daughter of the consul general in the Philippines, who's still alive, 
she was 11 years old uh, when uh, World War II was happening, and tracked her down, and she had all this uh, really interesting information. She had never seen the photo that we showed her because she and her and her mom had had gone to the to the United States already, but she knew everyone in the photo, and yet she had never seen the picture. And she told us that she thought her father's remains were among those. But she told she told us a fascinating story that. What happened was the Japanese invade the Philippines. There were like 100,000 ethnic Chinese living in the Philippines Islands at the time, and then a consular staff of about eight people in the, the Chinese consulate. And uh, the Americans, you know, Douglas MacArthur, and et cetera, they were leaving the island. They left troops at Bataan and Corregidor, who mounted a you know stern defense, but eventually uh, surrendered. Anyway, the MacArthur was leaving, and he he volunteered to take this uh, these Chinese diplomats with him, and they said, "No, we're going to stay. We have to, you know, advocate for all these ethnic Chinese on the islands." So they, what the Japanese do is they arrest the diplomats. They demand that they get that they collect a huge amount of money from uh, the ethnic Chinese and for you know to support the Japanese war effort. The Chinese diplomats refuse, and the Japanese march into a cemetery and execute them all. And so all their families spent an entire war in the Philippines not knowing what had happened to their diplomats until after. But this story you know, was told but to us by somebody who was actually there, uh, you know, the daughter of the consul general who was one of the people murdered. Wow. And so tracking, yeah, so, so tracking down things like that, you know, I, I hate to use the word fun when we're talking about horrible things, but, you know, for a journalist looking at a picture and trying to figure out what the story is behind it does have some fun aspects because you can, you know, you're, you're doing, you know, some some investigation. You're just trying to figure out how you can find things out. Another example, for example, was that there was a picture of the meetup between uh, the Russians and the Americans in uh, Germany when they were, you know, coming in the Nazis from both sides and about to close out the war. And then when they met up, they often had, you know, festivities, banquets, things like that. And we have a picture from a banquet where a Russian general is awarding a pistol to an American uh, general. And they had the name of the Russian general, and it was, you know, definitely wrong. The thing, just to remember, these soldier photographers were traveling all the time and uh, under difficult conditions. And so sometimes the information on their captions wasn't great. And they had this guy totally wrong. We knew that because we couldn't verify the name. And what I did is just sent an um, you know, email out to 10 Russian scholars at American universities and said, hey, who's this guy? Can anyone help? Got three responses. One of the people who responded uh, sent my email on to a Russian diplomat in Europe. She sent it on to uh, Medvedev University in Moscow. And the history department at Medvedev University identified who the person was, who the general was. So, you know, you get help from people if you ask. And uh, we just found a lot of stories uh, that we, you know, we tried to tell the stories behind these amazing pictures. Yeah, I noticed that I've been looking through the book over the past week or so since you sent me a, a PDF copy of it. And, you know, I was struck by a number of things looking through it. One being, as you mentioned earlier, the picture quality of the photos is not what most people would expect from that era. Uh, it, it looks like it's HD in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, and, I was, and I was another thing that, with how the book turned out. Yeah. 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 So, 
very, very well done as far as that goes. It, it's, it's just striking. But another thing that I noticed was, as you were just sort of alluding to, the, the detailed captions for most of the photos that, you know, give you quite a bit of information on what it is you're looking at. And oftentimes the names of some of the folks in the pictures and everything like that. It's, it's, it's really, it humanizes the war and, and makes it vivid in a way that, you know, we, we rarely get um, from such a distance of time. And I noticed, and I'm sure this is something that, that you all were striving for, that I noticed and I appreciated that this book contains a lot of pictures of the sort that most coverage in books and in documentaries of this war only includes a little bit of, if at all. And I mean things like photos of dead and maimed people, photos of destroyed cities and homes and buildings, and also something that you don't often encounter, which is photos of displaced refugees who are fleeing from you know one place to another for, for one reason or another and that sort of thing. So well, that was what that, yes, I agree with you. That's the, the refugees thing is just something we especially were struck by because, you know, during the war, a lot of the photos that the U.S. Army was, you know, that were being published were just showing kind of, you know, GIs because that was a big part of the story. But uh, this was total war. I mean, this was a war that, you know, spanned the globe and in which everyone was a target. And unlike some previous wars, you know, there were way more civilian casualties than, uh, than combatant casualties. Uh, that, that toll, according to one estimate, was three to one as civilians and, and soldiers. So, yes, the book really tries to kind of show the, what the effect of years of war have been on, you know, on civilians as well as the soldiers. Yeah, and I think that's something that often gets lost in the narrative that that Americans get of this war. I'm sure it's different in the countries where, you know, the war was happening right in their country. I'm sure it's it's a very mm-hmm. different take the way the, the the Russians or the Chinese or the Germans or whoever, the Japanese, the way that they kind of see the war. But the American version, because we were at such a distance and almost no American civilians died in the war, um mm-hmm. that that we kind of we lose sight of the civilians getting killed and then also the civilians, even those who didn't get killed being homeless refugees and all that. And, you know, so it's, I mean, it's a, it's a sad story, but I, I think it's an important thing to put back into the narrative. Well, and another example of, of the kind of picture that's in this book that you wouldn't have seen otherwise is um, a, kind of a tough picture to look at, but, but interesting is a, a picture of a dead horse along a road in Germany. And these German villagers are out and they're picking off pieces of the horse to eat because they're, so desperately hungry. And as the war was about to end and after it ended, there was great hunger, you know, in Europe, you know, the, you know, everyone's food supply, civilian food supplies had been, you know, destroyed and, and everyone was, was short of food. And this is the kind of picture that you just wouldn't have seen. I don't think you would have seen at the time, you know, that there was nobody, you know, don't, no one in America wanted to show a picture that was going to show that was going to make you sympathize with German villagers in the last days of the war. They were, uh, you know, obviously complicit in what their government had done. Right. Yeah. I mean, it seems like there's, there's a desire, uh, there was a desire at the time and, and perhaps ever since to, on the part of the U.S. government or, or at least, you know, important people in it, to, to kind of prevent American, average American people from really thinking about the plight of civilians in the enemy countries, right? That, 
you're you're kind mm-hmm. of supposed to either just not not see it at all, or if you do see it, you're supposed to sort of immediately dismiss it as, well, they're all guilty, sort of the, the William Tecumseh Sherman right. argument that, well, they all kind of, you know, civilians in Germany and Japan deserved whatever happened to them. And, you know, it's 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 harder to it's harder to dismiss it so lightly when you look at a vivid picture of what this actually looked right. like. Right. I don't think you can, you know, deny the responsibility. Uh, you know, I mean, the Americans have the same responsibility for what our government does. But, uh, but the book is, you know, I mean, we're not in the book trying to like say this person's, you know, bad person, good person. What we're trying to do is just really show a picture of what the, all these years of war had brought to the world. And I mean, the, we went to the title aftershock because we feel we felt like the last few days of the war and the you know immediate aftermath said so much about in effect it was an inventory of what war war had brought and what it had wrought and also it it to some extent since it's 1945 and we're getting into the atomic age it also shows the new world that's being created i mean we have a, there's a picture an army picture of the trinity nuclear test which was preceded the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And we have pictures from Hiroshima and Nagasaki after the army photographers got there. Also, there's a picture of Jewish refugees, you know, dancing in their camp, getting their awaiting travel to Palestine. There's a picture of Vietnamese protesting that they want their nation to be free and independent because, you know, as you know, uh, the French occupied Vietnam before the Japanese took it over during the war. And then when the Japanese were defeated, you know, instead of the allies giving Vietnam, you know, independence, the French took over again. And so there, and, and we know how that ended up, uh, for the United States. So, so this is, I think that, so the book kind of does look backward and does look forward in a way that's, that's kind of striking. We also tried to, to say surprising things, both in the pictures and, you know, and in the text. For example, and I learned some things as well. Um, for example, um, Nagasaki was not the initial target, was not the prime target. They were supposed to, that bomb was supposed to be dropped on the city of Kokura in Japan, but the weather was bad there. So they went to their secondary target, which turned out to be Nagasaki. So, you know, so, you know, hundreds of thousands died because of uh, the weather, yeah. you know, it's a, just a, the vagaries of war. And so uh, I, I, I hope the reader will learn what just, will, and there's not a you know ton of text. It's not a, something a big slot to slog through. It's a, you know, it's, they'll page through the pictures and see these just amazing photographs, but also the text will illuminate people about, you know, some of the things about the war they didn't know. Sure. Yeah. Another another aspect that I appreciated that often gets just left out of the narrative, and it's one of these things that for most Americans is an unknown unknown, is the the parts of the war, the theaters of the war, that while quite significant in terms of territory and numbers of people involved and all that, are just completely out of the narrative in the American view of the war. Things like China, Burma, India, those sorts of places mm-hmm. that, that you you managed to find some photos of what the war looked like in those places. And I think that's another one of those things that most Americans, you know, would, would really learn from in looking at this book that, oh, wow, there's this whole theater of the war that we don't know anything about. That's, I, thank you for noting that, because that, that we really tried hard to do that, uh, to, to make it not just this kind of simple, you know, uh, you know, fighting 
against the Nazis and fighting against the Japanese uh, military empire, but but also, I mean, not not just in Japan, not just in Germany. We you know we wanted to make it really clear that this war spanned continents and that um, it touched so many lives. And there's a really nice picture of a of a Buddhist temple in uh, in Burma, just when the Burma Lido Road is opened and and the area has been destroyed by the Japanese as they left. That's in there. And, and I don't think, you know, I, you know, there was, there's, as in everything, there's just a limit to how much attention people can pay to things. And there are so many stories in world war two. One thing that was uh, illuminating to me was just how vicious the fighting over the city of Manila was at the end of the war in the Philippines and how, um, you know how the fighting for the walled city was just so vicious, and the Japanese would refuse to surrender. There's a good picture in the book that shows uh, a Japanese POW with crutches, and he was one of only 30 Japanese that surrendered during the fighting. All of the all of the rest of them fought to the death, and um, it's just kind of amazing. And and so that was that was you know just I, we learned things about different part aspects of the war that we just had, had escaped our, our attention. So what would you say was your overall goal when setting out to do this project? And did that goal change or evolve at all over the course of working on it? Because I'm assuming that it was quite a long time that you, you devoted to putting together this book. Yeah, yeah, a couple of years, a couple of years. And um well, yes. I, th- I mean, there, as it turned out, there were two goals, and one of them kind of evolved more than the other. The first goal was we thought we knew that there was this kind of huge collection of photographs, and we just you know thought we'd look through it and see if we thought it could make a book, and we were instantly you know convinced that it would. And it seemed like an interesting story to tell the tell the story of these uh, soldier photographers, and that is an interesting aspect of the book, uh, just all by itself is all these uh, these GIs uh, drafted or volunteers who went into the army and you know became got trained in photography and became photographers and most of them had no photo no professional photo experience before the war. One of them, for example, was sold cameras in a camera store in San Antonio, but some of them had nothing to do with photography really in, until the, the war. They were trained. They were trained in in uh, movie cameras and also in still cameras. And then they went to their specialty and uh, then went set out. And these guys, because they're not, you know, they weren't hardened uh, press photographers who'd seen murder victims and things and seen fires and disasters. They approached it different from than, than journalists would. They, they were in effect, just regular people who had been trained in photography and were thrust into uh, into disaster scene after disaster scene, and so some you know some of them after the war wrote memoirs or wrote their impressions, and the book has uh, you know a lot of that, a lot of quotes from them and what their experience was like, and you know just how how affected they were by what had happened. Um, there's one story in the book where a photographer says that he's encountered uh, a group of people who he thinks are within, you know, a half hour of death. And he did, they're just dying. They've been, they're about to die. And he left his camera to take a picture. And then he just put the camera down and did not take the picture because he thought it'd be disrespectful. And, you know, so there's, so there, the book, I think 
tells a, a passionate human story about these press photographers, these uh, count soldier photographers and what they went through. Beyond that, a kind of an evolving secondary mission or goal in the book was to depict what total war looks like. Uh, World War II was the biggest disaster uh, that ever faced, and uh, and it was it, 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 it the devastation is just is just you know awesome, just on just it's just shocking and and sad, and we wanted to make that clear what total war was. You know, I gotta tell you, CJ, it's uh, there's kind of as we were talking about this and working on the book, we kind of developed this thought that. Um, modern Americans have a very limited uh, view of what war is. Contemporary Americans, they, um, for example, you know, we're in the middle of the largest, the longest war in American history right now. Right now, the, we're uh, fighting in Afghanistan. It's been going on since 2001. That's 18 years longer than ever any other war, any other conflict in, in U.S. history. Yet. It doesn't affect people's lives, most people's lives on a daily basis at all. The sacrifice that's being um, expended by Americans is really limited to a very small slice of Americans. And almost all of us are able to go about our day with virtually no thought about it. And what does that mean? I think it kind of means that Americans don't think about those sacrifices by others that much. And they don't. They have a view that war is distant and painless to them, and perhaps you know just limited and uh, and minor. And I think we wanted to tell these Americans of 2019 that war affects everyone, and it's also that it's not this idea of limited war. You can control what'll happen is a fantasy. And once you start a war, you never know where it's going to go and you never know who's going to be affected. And uh, I, I think we wanted to make a, a kind of a, an anti-war statement. You know, the more we looked at these pictures, the more we thought that the book should make a, a statement that people need to understand what war is and educate themselves on that so that in the future, you know, when they or their governments, you know, are facing the prospect of war, we know what we're getting into, which I don't think we do now. I think most people, it's just, it's vague to them. It's something they see in movies. Oh yeah. I would agree with that entirely. And I think it's, it's particularly powerful anytime. And I, and I try to do this in the classes I teach at my day job. And I've tried to do this from time to time when covering war on my podcast, such as, you know, I, I did a, a huge long Civil War series and tried to dig into as many sort of dark, neglected aspects of the war, like homeless refugees and civilian suffering and all that, that just gets left out of the story, that, mm -hmm. that it's particularly powerful when you're, when you're showing things like this that are from World War II, because World War II is always the one that is characterized as the good war, the clear-cut case of pure good versus pure evil and the good guys won and the bad guys lost and it's that simple and there's nothing else to to th th there are no subtleties or nuances or right. you know right. Right. all that sort of thing and so to to show some of this you know frankly kind of darker more disturbing sides in a lot of cases of what's supposed to be the good war the one that nobody is supposed to question or ever you know right. have any doubts right. about or whatever so in in that regard i think a book like this 
you know, is potentially pretty powerful to at least cause some people to to ask some questions and think some thoughts they otherwise might not. Right. And, and, and even in a war like World War II, where there was a clearly villainous enemy, you know, and uh, where you were fighting Nazi fascism. And uh, so you couldn't, you couldn't not fight that if you were a good person, even in a case like that, I think there's a, a takeaway. There's a lesson that, that, uh, people in democracies or people need people need to worry about their government they need to they need to keep despotic leaders from taking over i mean you know that's what happened in germany was not it happened over a period of years but you know in effect a, a civilized nation became the most depraved nation on earth and 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 how did that happen so i, I think even even in when you're talking about a good war uh you know there there are just plenty of lessons to learn. Also, yeah, uh, the U.S. was on the side of the right, in my opinion, for sure, and did a lot of good to put down kind of murderous regimes that had that were uh, causing pain to millions of, and death to ma- millions of people. But, you know, everything's not black and white. I mean, there's a picture in the book that shows, uh, in effect, an uh, American massacre. And, uh, this is, and again, this is the kind of picture that it's been published before, but it certainly isn't very commonly known, and it sure as heck wasn't published during uh, the period when it was taken. This is when the U.S. Uh, soldiers uh, liberated the Dachau camp and, you know, just saw just the most depraved treatment of human beings possible. And and can you, can you imagine being one of the first soldiers into Dachau? How, how just shocking! And I mean, I don't know what it would make you feel about the possibility of human beings and what they are, what horrible things they're capable of. But anyway, so these soldiers became furious. They were angry. They were appalled, and they rounded up all the SS guards. And they lined them up against the wall, and they got a, a machine gun, and they loaded, they put it in front of them, and as soon as the first round went in the chamber, the SS guards broke and ran. And as soon as they did, everyone opened up on them and shot them. So uh, at least 17 SS guards were killed in that incident. And uh, there's, a, there's a really good picture in the book that shows them, shows some of the shows some of the SS guards still not having been shot, but, but many of them falling along the wall or lying along, dead along the wall. Uh, it's an amazing picture and, uh, that the, the army did do an investigation of that and, um, did not charge anyone. I mean, obviously most people wanted the depravities of the war to be, you know, in the rear view mirror and not, to, you know, to dwell on them. But still, that's the, that's the kind of picture that's in the book because it helped tell the story of the war, but you never would have seen it at the time. Sure. Yeah, well, I mean, other than some of the ones that you've already mentioned in our conversation, what come to mind for you as some of the most surprising, striking, even shocking? I mean, a lot of things fall into this category, but the ones that really stood out to you, things you discovered while working on this book, photos that stood out to you above the rest for one reason or another. What are some other ones that really... Well. You know, I think there are some, I love some of the pictures in the book there. I mean, many of them, they're just great pictures and they just look so good. Um, a picture I like that's not, you know, super, you know, uh, horror, horrifying is a, 
photo of a British guy who's lost a limb, who's riding a bike, and he's riding a bike in front of a group of soldiers who have lost limbs who are sitting in wheelchairs watching him. And that is, uh, he's teaching them how people who've lost a limb can ride a bike. And to me, it was, it's kind of this symbolic, um, aftershock kind of, uh, picture because it's, you know, it's, it's positive. It's people trying to, you know, get past the war and learn how to survive afterward. But it, it really says a lot about the legacy of the war that many people even who survived were uh, forever, you know, wounded and maimed by it. And, but it's a, it's a beautiful picture and almost kind of a light picture. It's just an odd, pretty picture. Yeah, that but one uh, that one stood the, out to me too. That that was actually one I was going to mention. If you didn't, um, that one also it's a really good composition. The the photographer who right. took it really had an eye because it's it's just right. a beautiful and, composition. And, and it's a little off subject, but did did you notice that the that I'm looking at the picture now, and it's did you notice that every picture in the book is full frame, including all the all the numerical notations and the whole frame of the whole uh, negative. Right. That was a decision we made. We decided that we would not crop into the pictures. We would we would use the pictures as evidence. We would scan the whole thing and run the whole thing, you know, because you see, like in the side, it'll say Aegea Safety Film, which was the name of the you know the comp- the type of negative it was, and so you see all these notations and and but you also just see it full frame and you see it just as it was taken. So we, there are two things about that. We wanted it to feel like evidence, and we also wanted to remind the reader that somebody took this picture, you know, that there was, that this was not just sort of disembodied product of the war, that it was, that it was a human product that some person took great care to, and many people took great care to take the pictures. But I guess um, one picture I'd love to talk about is the cover photo. And the cover photo is a PFC Jack Pulliam, a picture of him. And, you know, it's, it's, we felt like it was the perfect photo for the cover uh, because it just says aftershock, the human toll of war. It just goes with the title so well. And so it's, it's a simple portrait of a guy, but he seems, he looks, he has the most exhausted look on the face that I think I've ever seen. He has this thousand yard stare in his, in, in his eyes, like he's just seen great horrors and, and is um, changed by them. And um, he's wearing this cap at a kind of an odd tilt on his head. And, um, Jack Pulliam, um, was from Pennsylvania and, uh, we tracked down his family. They, they live in Colorado now. And, um, they, uh, we told them we wanted to use the, the photo on the cover cause we thought it was just a brilliant photo. And I think they were thrilled by that. And they sent us a 19 page, um, memoir that, uh, Pulliam had written about his experience. And so let me just tell you about that. So Pulliam was in the Battle of the Bulge, and he was captured on his 20th birthday during the Battle of the Bulge. So he's captured by the Germans, and they march him and many others back to Germany to work as slave laborers. He does that for about a month. Then he and a comrade escape. Uh, He's hiding in a house in Germany, and a German officer comes in, and uh, Pulliam kills the German officer and uh to avoid being recaptured and uh then he hides in a fruit cellar and the advancing allies come and discover him and uh he uh the picture that's shown on the cover 
is him right after the allies, you know, took him back in and he has this just shocked, exhausted look on his face. And that cap he's wearing is the, the German officer's cap, the cap of the officer he, he killed in order to, to save himself. And in the memoir that his family shared with us, he, he said he ended it with uh, saying captured once again, but this time in the right hands. Wow. Yeah, that is a haunting photo. And you know what it called to mind for me was that photo. I think it was on the cover of Time magazine or something. The photo from maybe whenever it was 15 years ago of the Marine who had just gone through the Battle of Fallujah. And he's, mm-hmm. he's got that same just, you know, shell-shocked look. Um, I think he was, you know, smoking a cigarette. His face is all covered with dirt and grime and whatever. And he's just, he's got that, that same just haunted look of, of a guy who's been through hell. Right, right. And, and he had, you know, it's, it's, uh, so it's that picture just, uh, we thought, really told it. There's another picture in the book that's got a kind of a good story. I think, I think one of the most satisfying things about doing this book was, I mean, we aimed for pictures that were beautiful and also said a lot, but discovering kind of the stories behind the, the photos really uh, kind of made it. This was another step that made the book really stand out, I, I feel. There's a picture in the book that shows a Soviet prisoner at Buchenwald. He's a, you know, from the, the Red Army, and he's, uh, he was put in the slave, as a slave laborer. Uh, actually, I'm not sure he was in the Army now that I say that. Think about that. He may just have been from Soviet Union. Anyway, he's, he's made a slave laborer and he's just been liberated. And so the picture shows him, he's wearing that kind of striped uh, suit that uh, all the, you know, the camp inmates wore. And he's angrily pointing at a, a German soldier, a, a guard who had brutalized prisoners at uh, Buchenwald. He's just, and it's just this great shot of him just kind of angrily just pointing his finger at him. Like, this is the guy who did all these horrible things. And uh, that picture has gotten a little attention that was published, you know, at the time. But the story behind it is kind of fun uh, or interesting, at least. Uh, the photographer, Harold Roberts, always felt bad about that photo. And that was because he was using his speed graphic camera, and there, uh, which holds two cartridges with negatives in it. So you can take two pictures at the same time or, you know, in succession. And then you have to, you know, take those cartridges out and put two fresh ones in. And so he took this famous photo and he was pulling the cartridges out to kind of change the the film. And um, the inmate hauled off and punched the SS guard in the face. And so Harold Roberts always felt like uh, that he had missed a photo that would have been even better than the one he took. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that one. Another one that stood out to me was there's a photo in there of the inmates, the slaves who were being basically worked to death at the Nordhausen rocket factory. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we, it's one of the dark sides of the war that has been pretty visible for a long time has been, you know, the Holocaust death camps and all that. That's, that's one of the things that most people have at least seen a little bit of the images of, of those horrible conditions. But Mm -hmm. the, the Nordhausen rocket factory, not many people know about that and how, the guys who ran that, many of them later, as part of Operation Paperclip, were saved from justice and brought to the United States and went to work, you know, for the for the military or for the space program or for contractors uh, that that do those things. And 
you know, with, with Von Braun, who basically ran that place being the most, the most famous. But when you know the history of, of Operation Paperclip and all that sort of thing, then when you look at that photo of just how awful it was for, for the unfortunate people who were forced to work at that, that rocket factory, it just really, I mean, makes you, makes you wonder about that decision to save those well, guys from justice. Yes, that's an interesting thing, and that, and that sense of uh, of the we have to forget the past because we have to think about the future mentality is you know definitely a part of this book. Yeah, because you know the Soviets were our allies in the war, yet it was clear they were going to be our adversaries afterward, and so that's you know that's why the U.S. felt like it had to go easy on von Braun to you know to just for the future uh, and future technology. You're right, but they, you know, yes, they were. They made decisions that to let some evil people off. That the the whole slave labor system in in Nazi Germany is is fascinating to read about. I didn't even know it was called Operation Paperclip. That's interesting. I'll have to look that up. Yeah, um, there's there's some good books out there um, on it that have been published relatively recently because, of course, a lot of the details of that whole thing were kept secret for a very long time. Because they they actually fabricated personnel files and records for these guys to make it look like they had not been the ardent Nazis involved with horrible things that they in mm-hmm. fact were. They they you know the the OSS basically would like falsify backstories for these guys and then bring them to the U.S. Mm-hmm. and give them good jobs. That's fascinating, but you know that's again that uh, you know that's. They would argue that you know that that was the past, and that they had to worry about kind of protecting the future. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's you know it's tough. The um, interesting thing about the you know this whole post-war period, the immediate post-war period. There's a photo in the book that I also like of General Patton giving a speech to uh, troops who are about to go home, and that gives us an opportunity to explain how you know Patton. Patton didn't think the war was over when the war was over. I mean, he, you know, frankly would have just decided to go after the Red Army, the Soviets, you know, if it had been up to him. There's a, you know, he wrote in his diary uh, at this time, he wrote, quote, we can no more understand a Russian than a Chinaman or a Japanese. And from what I've seen of them, I have no particular desire to understand them except to ascertain how much lead or iron it takes to kill them. The Russian has no regard for human life and is an all-out son of a bitch, barbarian, and chronic drunk. So that's that's the way he did, you know, he thought of the how these allies the Russians. So um, yeah, so the post-war period is interesting. There are also, uh, as you know, as you you see, you noticed um, photos in the book of, uh, for example, the black market in Vienna after the war. All these kind of shady characters in the square who are you know trading merchandise. And it was a the post war period is fascinating. Yeah, there have been a few um, well well reviewed books coming that have come out in recent years that that deal with that, which I've not read. They've been on my giant you know list of things to read, but that deal with the first year or two in Europe after the war, just how how chaotic everything really was, and how you know in in most coverage in history books and documentaries and whatever of World War II, it's like 
it kind of ends and then pretty quick you're supposed to be back to normal and thanks to the Marshall right. Plan, everybody's d- doing fine and Germany's becoming a great uh, industrial country again, whatever. And, and in reality, it was like several years of real chaos and deprivation and right. all this. They called know, it the rubble stuff. era. Yeah. You know, they go in Europe. And there's a, another thing that's, you know, they, that gets to the whole idea that you're talking about that, that when the war is over, the war is not really over. Uh, and is the idea, there's a picture in the book that shows, um, a 16 year old German kid named, uh, Heinz Petri. And he's, uh, he was tied up and put in front of a firing squad, uh, weeks after the war ended, he was part of a guerrilla group called the werewolves that was, uh, planning to, continue fighting against the allies even after uh, the, the war had been lost and Hitler was dead. And um, that's a kind of a fascinating photograph as well, you know, that, that this teenager is going to be executed by the Americans, you know, weeks after the war's end, ending. Uh, it just kind of, it, and, you know, there are also pictures in the book of the war crimes trials and, and, and like that to where there was, there was a heck of a lot of cleanup to be done after the war ended. Yeah, and the, some of these groups that had fled as refugees were trying to get home, and sometimes governments are forcibly moving people around from one place to another. Uh, it's, it's. Um, I really like the picture, uh, the pictures of the kids being uh, sent out of Vienna to other parts of Europe to be taken care of because there's just not enough food, or their families don't have enough wherewithal to take care of them in, in Vienna in the, the year after the war. And uh, I thought that was really compelling. And I, we, as we were doing research for the book, we read, we, uh, we read about how some of these kids, these uh, you know, child refugees from Vienna, had, had gone. I think they went to the Netherlands, if I'm remembering it right. And uh, as uh, as adults, as uh, senior citizens, they went back to ne- to the Netherlands to thank them for taking care of them during that time period. Yeah. So a case of someone doing something noble, someone doing something humane in this, in this terrible context. Yeah. There's, I mean, it's always kind of nice that there are these little bright spots of some, some people doing, doing decent things and and altruistic things. Speaking of that, let me tell you one story that I want to make sure and, and, and mention to you. So there was a, there's a person in the book of a woman named Amelie Mary Reichman, and she was a Jewish slave laborer who uh, was part of a group of, um, slave laborers who were put on these forced, forced marches by the Nazis, you know, as, a, as the Germans were retreating, oftentimes they would take their slave laborers or their, you know, their POWs with them sometimes you know, on the road and they would march them hard and they would feed them little. And so the death rate among them was just awful. And uh, ultimately uh, Amelie Mary Reichman and about a hundred of other women who had been slave laborers, they were, taken to just a barn and abandoned by the Nazis. They could hardly walk. They had no food. So they were, in effect, they were put into that barn for all of them to die in that barn. And um, the Americans came upon them, and uh, a medical officer was with them and treated them and uh, got them you know, food uh, and carefully took care of them to where many of them, the majority of them, survived. And uh, we're very grateful to him. And that medical officer, that doctor, whose name was um, Aaron Cahan, and he is the father of one of our co-authors, Richard Cahan. 
Wow. And so, so that's kind of a cool connection with the book. And Emily, Emily Reichman is her pictures in the book. There was a picture taken just after she kind of had been, when she was being nursed back to health, she had never seen this picture. She went to the national archives a few years ago, just to look for pictures. And that's the first time she saw the picture of herself that had been taken by the army signal corps photographers. The, um, many of the women from uh, that group that had been abandoned in the barn uh, wrote my uh, friend and co-author's mom to thank her for all the great feats that uh, my co-author's father had done, you know, saving, saving those people's lives. Interestingly, um, and this guy goes to show how, you know, finding things in archives can be a trick. Uh, my co-author Richard Cahan went looking for his father's picture in the archives and couldn't find it because they spelled his name wrong in the caption. Finally, he ran across it, but he'd been looking for a, quite a long time. Huh. They spelled it Cohan. So, so that's the thing about, about, uh, archives is that you spell someone's name wrong. It could be lost almost forever. Right. But that's a, I mean, that's a real emotional connection to the book for, for us is, you know, Rich's dad, uh, was, you know, part of these events. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a heck of a story. So you've already touched on this uh, in in a few places in our conversation, but I wanted to just, as we're we're getting ready to wrap up, kind of zoom, zoom the lens out a little bit again and ask you what lessons, like kind of big picture takeaways, do you think that this book has to share with its readers? What do you think that the the thoughtful perceptive person who has a look at this book is likely to glean from having a look at these photos and the text accompanying them well you know we're all photo editors and we we like you know we we picked out a few little pictures so few pictures that showed kind of devastated cities you know just rubble just but mostly we looked for faces and we looked for people and i think that that a reader looking through this book will connect up with the faces of people and will realize that it wasn't, you know, this wasn't a, this wasn't a war that affected millions. This was a million wars that affected a million people in different ways. You know, it was, it, everyone had a different experience and, but, but people were almost everyone was affected by it. Nobody could really escape the war. And uh, I, I think that I, I, I hope that, what people get out of it is just this sense of, of humanity and, and kind of kinship with people. Um, for example, you know, from different places, you know, the pictures of picture of the Chinese relatives with their, uh, uh, their kins, uh, skulls and bones, you know, just, I mean, I'm hoping the reader will sympathize with these people who live on the other side of the globe and who, you know, they would never have met, but the connections, I think that, I think that, what we really want is is to people to realize this was a world war and affected people all over, and we all have so much in common with each other, and we all kind of owe it to each other to avoid doing this again. Yeah, very well said. I agree with that completely. Well, Mark, it's been great talking to you about this book. the The book is fascinating and and visually striking, and I would urge any of the listeners who think this sounds interesting at all to go and check it out. But I want to thank you very much for taking the time today to come on the podcast with me. 
Well, thanks for your interest. I mean, I, I do hope people will pick up Aftershock and, and give it a look. And I, I think they'll be I think they'll be captivated by it. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the Dangerous History Podcast, and I hope that you found some value in it. If you have and you'd like to contribute to my work, there are many different ways that you can help out. One that costs you nothing but maybe a little bit of time and effort is to help spread the word about the show to anyone you think might be interested in it. There are also a bunch of ways that you can financially assist me to continue doing the work that I do and to continue making it better as best I can as time goes on. The most helpful way and the one that gives you potentially a lot of value back in return is to sign up for a recurring contribution via either Patreon or Subscribestar, and the links to my Patreon page and my Subscribestar page will be in the show notes of this episode. I now have multiple levels of support via either Patreon or Subscribestar. For $2 per month, you are at the Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, and you will get access to all of the vintage DHP episodes, meaning the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. And of course, you'll get the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping to keep this podcast going, and you'll have my gratitude for doing so. For only $5 per month, you will be at the Journeyman Scholar Warrior level. And for this, you'll receive the benefits of the $2 Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, plus access to special bonus DHP episodes that are available nowhere else, as well as access to ad-free regular DHP episodes as they come out, and you will be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warrior's private Facebook group. For $15 per month, you will be at the Scholar Warrior level, and you'll get all the benefits of the journeyman level plus access to Dangerous History Lyceum course lectures as they are produced and released. And for $25 per month, you'll be at the Master Scholar Warrior level, where you will get all the benefits of the $15 Scholar Warrior level plus additional benefits still to be determined, but probably including but not limited to a regular live chat You can also make one-time or recurring contributions to the Dangerous History Podcast via PayPal or Bitcoin. And another great way you can help out my work is by clicking on any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website to do your Amazon.com shopping. And if you buy stuff after going through any of those affiliate links, I get a little commission at no additional cost to you. And this helps me to buy supplies, research materials, etc., to keep making the podcast and making the podcast better. I also have an Amazon wish list of things to help me out with the Dangerous History podcast and related productions that I put in the show notes of episodes. It's mostly research materials, but also there's some stuff in there, hardware for audiovisual production, etc. So if you want to order me something off there, that also helps out. Your support and contributions are what keeps this thing going and keeps me doing the work that I do. 
so I hope that you will consider helping out. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. As always, doing my best to help you learn the past, understand the present, and prepare for the future. 